0: Everybody, welcome to episode number 67 of Unmasked. I'm your host, Neil Getzlow. As always, thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. 67 episodes. Ash, it is <laughs> it is hard to believe um, that um that we've made it all the way up to number 67, but we have, and we're gonna keep pressing on. And um, I just appreciate all my faithful listeners out there. Thank you for for tuning in each and every week. If you are a new listener this week, um, it's just very blessed that you're here, and I encourage you to scroll through some of the older episodes on your podcast feed, check out some of the other amazing interviews that we've had um, over the over the past year. Uh, you can also learn more about me over at my website, neogetslow.com, where you can learn more about my journey, and also um, check out my book, um, Unmasked, Conquering Sexual Sin and Walking in Victory. So let's just get right into today's interview because this is this is a good one. Um $200,000 a year. That's how much one sex trafficked woman can bring in for a trafficker. So on this week's episode we talked to Dan Nash and Dan is the co-founder of the Human Trafficking Training Center and a retired Missouri State Trooper over his nearly nearly three decade career Dan was responsible for creating the Human Trafficking Unit and was the Enforcement Supervisor of the Missouri Attorney General's Office Statewide Anti-Human Trafficking Task Force. Now, through the work that Dan does um, as part of the Human Trafficking Training Center, along with his business partner, Allison Phillips, and you might remember Allison, I did an interview with her at the end of 2022, and I'll put a link to her uh, her interview um, in the show notes, you know, they bring a different approach in training law enforcement by addressing shortcomings in law enforcement's response to trafficking, and help them improve in identifying and rescuing sex trafficking victims. They're on pace uh, in 2023 to train more than 5,000 law enforcement officers alone across the U.S. and and Dan and I um, have this have a really good conversation about. Talk about what their training looks like, the impact uh, that it is having, the barriers they face, and some new laws that are um, starting to be talked about. Especially, um, well, it's happening in the state of Missouri. Some new laws that are maybe being put in place to slow demand. So we we get into all that, and um, yeah, this is just a great uh, great interview. I appreciate Dan coming on. So let's just jump right into it. Episode number sixty seven unmasking the journey of dan nash and the human trafficking training center hey dan thank you so much for coming on the unmasked podcast this week i appreciate it
1: thank you for having me it's awesome i'm really looking forward to it
0: yeah like i was saying i had a chance to talk to the other half of of the human trafficking training center allison back in november time frame so um but i've been definitely um Wanted to get you on. So I uh, appreciate your time. Before we get started, why don't you just take a minute to uh, introduce yourself?
1: I'm Dan Nash, one of the co-founders of the Human Trafficking Training Center. And um, prior to that, I was a, a state trooper for 27 years. And so I've got a, a little bit of a background in the human trafficking arena.
0: So, yeah, so um, like how has this the human trafficking, I don't know what you call it, sector. Um, how has this changed from when you first started, you know, investigating and, and being a part and learning about this to where things are today? <laughs>
1: well, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's not even remotely the same. Um, I first started getting involved in quote unquote vice related crimes. Cause that's what we called it then in 1997. Yeah. And basically all we did was just go out and arrest all the girls and we patted ourselves on the back and told ourselves we were doing a great job. And the business, the businesses were happy with us because we were getting the girls off the streets. And, you know, we we thought we were doing our part for God and country and we just didn't know any better. Honestly, we didn't have any training. We did. Nobody told us anything about any of this. We just thought we were doing the right thing.
0: Yeah um so what i mean what was your what was your motivation for our, for sort of leaving the the law enforcement world and going out on your own to set up human trafficking training center a
1: couple things happened during during the last part of when i was working for the government where alistair and i just kind of realized that we really probably could not do what we wanted to do to help victims and we could not, we were no longer going to be in a position to really have the impact that we needed to make due to a lack of vision due to corruption due to um, a variety of factors that were really kind of out of our control. And I didn't think there was any way that we could, Change, make changes to that. And Allison didn't either. So we both decided it was time to go. And we basically all both left on the end of June in 2021. And we decided to go out and go into the private sector where we thought we could have an impact and do something that other people were not doing. And so we took a chance and that's what we did.
0: So, you know, and I see you, you and Allison both posting on LinkedIn and you're, you're always on the go, you're always providing these trainings has the reaction that you've gotten from law enforcement and from, you know, your training sessions, has that surprised you at all? Or is this kind of what you expected to to happen? Is it, I guess, did you find more interest than you thought you would have, or is it sort of, uh, you kind of knew this was what you were going to walk into?
1: It did surprise me. Um, Alistair and I were trying something that was different. We were trying something that was new. We were trying to a different approach that we had to what everybody else was teaching across the country. And it took off really quickly, literally within three weeks, I think of us leaving our government jobs. We were teaching a class in Arkansas to a hundred some cops and everything just kind of seemed to fall into place. It was just I mean, I don't really don't know how to describe it. Allison is better at describing this part than me, but she, she's very, um, she's very firm and she's very staunch in her belief that it was a God thing and that all the stuff that we went through working through the government, the frustration, the disappointments, um, the Constantly banging our head against the wall, the constantly not been able to get things accomplished due to the bureaucracy and everything else, that it kind of prepared us for something different. And once we got into that place, it just kind of went. And and I didn't know how it was going to go. Neither did Allison, because we were trying something different. We were trying something new that other people weren't doing. And you know, within the first few months, things went. We started our first class was in September. And so we did basically the last three months of the year and we taught several classes. And then in 2022, we taught like 36 classes. And this year we're on pace to do like 44 or something like that. And we have another 15, I think, that are kind of in the hopper, which I don't know if we'll get all those. But even if we get half of those, we're talking 55 classes. We're talking a class a week all across America.
0: And how many how many attendees do you usually have for those classes?
1: It depends in a more rural setting, maybe fifty to seventy five in a more urban setting, hundred fifty to two hundred. We did like two hundred and eleven in Atlanta. We did like two hundred and seven in Cleveland. So we're probably averaging somewhere in that hundred and twenty five or so range. So you know we'll probably end up doing four to five thousand cops this year.
0: That's amazing, and I, you know, and I, I, I do think it is a god thing, and to open up some doors for for the both of you to be able to pursue this full time, and to pro- provide a need. Like what, what, what is the barrier when it comes to? I mean, is it just red tape and bureaucracy when it comes to why government and why law enforcement isn't on top of this when they see it happening?
1: I think it's a combination of things I think some of them just don't see it happening they, they hmm. see these they see these girls as and I say girls you know because that's indifference to the majority it's about 85 hmm. percent female but um I think some of them just don't see it happening they just see them as hookers and hoes and junkies and prostitutes and And but we the the academic research is all really consistent that that's not the case. Some ninety to ninety five percent of these girls are actually under some kind of third party control. They're they're trafficking victims. And, And and the and the thing that I tell people in every class that we teach is let's let's forget about the academic research. Let's just look at common sense. And I've asked this in every place we've ever taught, whether it's Pakistan, Ukraine. America, Canada, it doesn't matter. Wherever we've taught, I've said, is anybody when they're 13, 14, 15 years old ever thought to themselves, you know, please, God, please, please, God, when I grow up, just let me be a prostitute. Let me be able to have sex with 15 guys a day and get a STD and a UTI and get abused and get assaulted and had them do horrible things to me and insert things inside of me that's going to hurt me and you know have to avoid serial killers and and all the other stuff that comes along with with this this with this lifestyle please please god let me be a prostitute someday and i've asked people to raise their hands if they've ever thought that and i have mean, yet to find one person because well, that's, a- that's not what people want to do so if yeah. we don't even look at it from the academic standpoint just look at it from a common sense standpoint.
0: Well, and and so I saw that the um, the post that you made this morning about the the um, operation that happened in Independence, Missouri, and the press release that was put out, and um, this idea that if, if kind of what the idea that you suggested, which is if police are asking the women when they're getting picked up if you're being trafficked, and they say no, which most women are not going to admit to that, then they get popped for, for prostitution. Right.
1: Correct. And, and that's, that's, that's on law enforcement and that, and that's really a training issue that I I don't, I don't think that most law enforcement, you know, 99% of law enforcement are good people. They're, they're, they're doing good work with the best that they got. They don't make a lot of money. It's a super stressful job, super hard job. They just do it because they want to help people. It's not for the accolades. It's not for the money. It's not for the prestige because none of those things happen. Mm -hmm. It's all about helping people. And but I think they just don't know. And we as a society have failed them. I mean, that that would be kind of like having a plumber come over and work on your house when he doesn't know anything about plumbing or an electrician or a doctor or a lawyer. We make them go to training. We make them do stuff. But yeah, we don't even give the police human trafficking training. Before we run them out there and say, "Okay, here's a gun, go out there and go do this. So I really think it's a training issue. It's not that the police are bad. And what the police do is just ask them, just like you said, are you being trafficked? And when they say no, then I go, well, I guess she's a prostitute and they just take her to jail. And that just makes the whole system worse. And it feeds into the traffickers views and, and what the traffickers tell the girls that the cops are never going to help you, they're just going to arrest you. And it reinforces the whole entire, you know, mindset that law enforcement is not an option. Law enforcement is not someplace I can go and ask for help. And so it, it becomes this just evil circle of, you know, a hamster on a wheel, so to speak. And it's it's just a complete lack of understanding.
0: So then when you go into, you know, you go into your training, what are some of the things that you're sharing with? I mean, you know, obviously you can't divulge all the secrets, but what are some of the concepts that you're trying to share with, with police to help better educate them about um, the work they're doing?
1: So we, we get into the psychology of how a someone that is being trafficked is actually controlled. And there's a lot of different ways. There's like, you know, 50 different ways, probably that someone can be controlled and we get into the psychology of, you know, the PTSD and the, the trauma bonding and why these victims don't disclose the fear, the fear of assault and, and all this other the debt bondage and all these other things that come into play. Um, their, their whole traumatic history for one, I don't think people realize. So I've been doing human trafficking stuff for about 15 years. Allison's been doing it around 12 years. So we're talking like 27 years between the two of us. In all that time, of all the trafficking victims we've ever interviewed, and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, we've only talked to one between us, one that was not sexually abused as a child. Hmm. It's the same story all the time sexually abuses as a kid, sexually abuses as a kid, sexually abuses as a kid, sexually abuses as a kid. So for most of these, you know, they're these victims, they're sexually abused as a child. They have all this trauma, they have all this stuff that's going on in their head. Uh, and then later in life, You know, they become a runaway or they get involved in drugs and alcohol, or, you know, all this stuff happens. And then they end up, you know, on the street or wherever they are. And then somebody comes along and grooms them and manipulates them and looks for those vulnerabilities that was created by all this sexual abuse as a child. And then they manipulate those vulnerabilities. And then the next thing you know, they're in a situation they can't get out of and they're being trafficked. And now the police come along and you want this girl. In five minutes, you've known her for five minutes and you want this girl to tell you all her deepest, darkest secrets and everything that's been happening to her since she's six or eight. Common sense would tell you that's not going to happen. Anybody that's ever went to a counselor or been to drug rehab or anything like that will tell you that it takes five, six, seven, eight times Before you I think I think the average is around seven to eight visits with a counselor before you ever even tell your counselor what is really going on inside your head. Yeah. But we expect some girl to to tell a stranger on the side of the road in five minutes. And when she doesn't, we take her to jail. And and I tell the police all the time. I said, when you do that, when you threaten her and say you need to tell me who your trafficker is or you're going to go to jail, you are now the trafficker. I mean, think about that. What does the trafficker do? He says, "You go out and you have sex with people today, and you bring me fifteen hundred bucks back, or whatever it is, at the end of the day, or I'm going to beat you." So when the cop says, "Tell me who your trafficker is, or you're going to jail," what's the difference? Right? Yeah. There is no difference. We're just like the trafficker, and then we yeah. and then we expect a different result.
0: <laughs> Sure. Sure. Um, are there certain things that you, that you train people to look for, for when they're picking up and talking to these women? Are there certain things to look for certain, whether it's, um, signs, tattoos, language that they're using that can, can be a tip off that they're being tracked? For sure.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a host of indicators, everything from specific tattoos that, Um, The trafficking victims will have. The the traffickers themselves will have their own different kinds of tattoos. Um, We look for signs of control. That's always big. You know, the, the lack of an identification on their person is always big. That's pretty common in the trafficking world. In other words, the trafficker or someone else is holding their ID. Because if you think about it, what can you do without an ID? You can't rent a hotel room, you can't buy beer, you can't buy cigarettes, you can't rent a car, you can't do most things in life without an ID. So that's powerful control over someone if you have their ID, right? Where are they going to go? So things like that, Um, terminology, just a host of things that we look for that we call indicators. And then once we see these indicators, then we teach a specific way of contacting and talking to that victim, and when we do it, and this was something that we created, and and now we teach all across the country. Instead of giving a getting a seven percent disclosure rate, which is about what law enforcement gets when they ask a trafficking victim, "Are you being trafficked?" About seven percent will say yes, and ninety three percent say no. Um, well, when we use this new approach, we're getting over fifty percent of these girls to tell us they're being a tra- They're being trafficked. Wow! It's just wow. a completely different way to go about doing it, and You know, they'll call it voodoo and they'll call it a variety of things. But really what we're doing is we're just using psychology to, and we're treating these girls like human beings and not as suspects. And when you do that, you can get results.
0: By, are you able to, are you making an impact then on the other side where these women are telling you that they're trafficked now? Does that make it easier to go after the pimp? 100%.
1: Most prosecutors, they can prosecute a case. If you do a good investigation, they can prosecute a case without a victim disclosure, but it's more difficult and they don't like to do it. So most prosecutors do not want to touch a case like that without a disclosure. So the more disclosures you get, and then if you put a good investigation together, the more prosecutors are going to take those cases and the more traffickers are going to get prosecuted which really is is our ultimate goal because you know we, we preach this all the time that we can teach we can teach all of America about trafficking but if law enforcement is not in a position and trained properly to do something with it none of it matters the whole system breaks down you can call the cops as many times as you want but if they don't do anything nothing happens and you can go out here as a nonprofit group and you can go out and find trafficking victims and try to get them off the street and get them out of strip clubs and get them out and get them into help. And, and that's great. And we should be doing that. But what what does the trafficker do if we don't arrest him? He just goes and gets another girl and and we never get ahead. It's just like being on a hamster wheel. Yeah, it's just it's, we never get ahead. We never get ahead.
0: And, and I will. I had the opportunity to sit on a sit in on the Citizen Academy. That you did earlier this spring and I, th- I think the number was that the pimp makes what two hundred thousand? is that for
1: on average yeah on average yeah. across america it varies you know the per person car- like car- per
0: car- per one person that they have in their possession right
1: correct so if it, so if you have five girls it's a million dollars hmm. there's a lot of money to be made that's why there's that's why trafficking is increasing so much, and why it's now the second largest criminal enterprise in the world behind drug trafficking. It's it's a hundred and fifty billion dollar a year industry.
0: Well, and in are you? And then you're seeing drug cartels that are getting into the trafficking business because it's easier no. easier to for them to be cri- easier criminal activity for them.
1: So cartels are in the trafficking business for two reasons. Number one, because the cartels control the Southern border. And right now the way the border situation is, they're making a mint off of the border. They're Mm -hmm. making more money right now than they've, than they've ever made in the history of the cartels. Mm -hmm. So the Southern border is the, the open border is the best thing that could have ever happened to the cartels. Everything that goes across there, every person, every amount of drug, everything, the cartels get a piece of, right? Um, and then secondly, the cartels are what we refer to as one of the big five groups in America that are involved in, in trafficking women. And the cartels usually do it in brothels. Um, they do not have an online footprint. So they generally do not have like advertisements on escort ads and things like that. It's more of word of mouth. Everybody just knows in that community. You go down to that house, that's the brothel or that business. That's the brothel. And you can you know pay for sex there. So that's that's how the cartels operate.
0: Hmm. And, um, what kind of impact does, you know, obviously since the time that, you know, you started your career to where we're at today with online and, you know, online activity, how has that changed? Has that made it harder for you to do your job and find traffickers or does it, because it is everywhere, does it, does it, I guess, maybe bring more opportunity for the chance to, to save someone and rescue someone?
1: In a lot of respects, it does bring more opportunity because the trafficker and the victim, if they're advertising online, which nowadays most of the girls will. Are there still girls that don't like the girls that are involved with the cartel? Yes. Are there still girls that work, you know, a blade, which is basically just a word for a street in a certain town where the girls will walk and do like street level commercial sex work? Um But not every town has those anymore. The Internet has kind of put a lot of those streets out of business. Kansas City still has one. I mean, Independence Avenue, but St. Louis doesn't have one. Um, A lot of places don't have them anymore. So everything has most things have moved online. So because of that, when you go and you leave an escort ad online, you put a photo out there, you put a phone number out there, um, you put things out there. It leaves an online footprint that the police can go and and find, and find evidence. And an example of that is we have a pretty good idea because of the online footprint on the low end. And this is the low end because we, we can't control the cartels that have brothels and we cannot control some of the familial trafficking um, that, that does not have an online footprint, but most things have an online footprint. So, so like, for example, in Missouri, on any given day, we know Missouri has between, 3400 and 3600 trafficking victims on the low end that are operating every day. So if you if you throw in the the cartel brothels in there and the familial trafficking in there, it's probably more like 5000 some victims a year in the state of Missouri. Kansas is a little bit lower, it's around 24 to 2600 a day. Um, so probably more like 3500 a day. So if you think about that, you're talking 8,500 victims on any given day, just in Missouri and Kansas.
0: That's a staggering amount of people impacted in this. Like, and this is what, you know, and I think about, right. Coming from, from my side of the story, how, what are your thoughts on the demand side? How, how can, from your vantage point, what you've seen, and I know you see men who get popped for this and doing operations, that kind of thing, who are looking to buy, Trafficked women. How how what are some of the things in your mind we need to be doing for demand to reduce demand for this?
1: Well, number one, law enforcement doesn't spend a lot of time historically doing demand because it's a misdemeanor. Um, it's basically like a traffic ticket. So it's 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 resources, it's time, it's expense for law enforcement to do demand. And and consequently, if that's all it's going to be, they don't want to spend their time doing it. So the best thing that we could do in America is to pass laws. We have one in Missouri right now that we're trying to get passed to make the purchasing of sex a felony that would not only motivate law enforcement to do it more, which, which the demand side has to be part of your overall strategy. You know, if if you break it down into four pieces, demand would be part of that strategy. So theoretically 25% of the time you should be working on the demand side. Um, Making it a felony would help big time. It would help not only law enforcement to motivate, but it would also provide a little bit more of a deterrent for, for people that are thinking about going out and purchasing sex. Because depending on what job you have, if you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a teacher, you get jammed up on a felony, you're going to lose your job. And they know they're not going to lose their job if they get caught right now. It's a traffic ticket. Their wife may not find out. They're just going to pay a fine and move on down the road. But if we make it a felony, now that becomes a big deterrent. And and especially when we're talking about the low-frequency buyers, they need a deterrent. You can run off the low-frequency buyers with a deterrent. The high-frequency buyers, which are only about 15%, maybe 20 max, you're not going to run them off. You're going to have to arrest them because they're also doing a bunch of other criminal activity. But but that 85% that's the low-frequency buyers, we can deter that. We know we can. So let's run them off and make it. So they think twice before they go out and do it.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm going to share, I'm going to share the story with you that I haven't told very many people before, but so it, back in 1996, um, I had, uh, I, I was, I had, I was looking in the back of the pitch, right? The pitch is a Kansas city publication that used to have all these ads in them. And, um, went and visited someone about a week later. I had Kansas city vice squad show up at my work wanting to talk to me and, but they, they, they were interviewing me to confirm what I did, but they, but they weren't after me. They were after something bigger, which so as someone is, like you said, like it sort of, it spooked me for a minute, but it didn't, but knowing that I was not going to get charged with anything, I, you know, I snapped out of it after a couple of weeks and went right back to what I was doing.
1: So let me ask you this. that That's really interesting. But had you re once you realized the cops are not after me and that probably left you with a, a feeling of, well, I could continue to do this and they're probably not going to be after me. But if you thought that they were coming after you and they came and they interviewed you and they said this is part of an investigation and you may be charged in the near future. We will call you and you can turn yourself in or whatever. Would that have deterred you?
0: If it was if I was going to be charged with a felony, you you better believe it. Without That's question. Ex-
1: That's exactly what I'm talking about there, yeah.
0: right? Yeah, you can't uh, feel felony you're not coming back from, and everything falls apart at that point. Um, so yeah. So I what what um where what is the progress of that bill in Missouri?
1: It had it, it I think last I knew had made it through committee, and I don't know where it is now, but um Allison and I just talked to Jeff Coleman from Jackson County. He's the the state representative who's pushing it. And um we talked to him maybe two weeks ago, and he said he thinks there's a chance we can get it through. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and say a few prayers and and hope that that yeah. happens. I know Texas was the first state to do it. And then now um, several other states are moving along with it. Georgia, Florida, Oklahoma, um, maybe Tennessee. There's a a plethora of states that are moving forward with it. And if we can get that to start taking off across the country, I think we'll see a demand reduction just by that.
0: You you have to. I just I I think that, uh, like you said, there's there's this there's a 15% at the top and probably 15% at the bottom that are just don't know what they're doing. But the ones and the ones at the top are just to have too much money and don't have a care in the world. They think they can do anything, but it is that middle section of men who are the ones that are um, confused and broken. Don't real, like for me, like didn't realize I was visiting trafficked women. I think knowing those facts, would have def if I had known those facts earlier. Would have changed my behavior because I never, cons- I never considered it. Sure, you know um, the, o- the other, the uh, other, the other thing that I want to ask you about and talk about because I I've heard you present on this and I've seen some posts on it is uh, which is I think it's sort of the hidden trafficking problem out there, which is the illegal massage business, and that seems to be like a hotbed of trafficking activity, and it is right under everybody's backyard basically.
1: I I doubt that there's too many people that are listening to this that don't drive to work or drive to their kid's school or drive to the grocery store or to the dry cleaners and don't pass an illicit massage business. And we all know where they are. We all know that what they look like, uh, you know, and, and I've had, Plenty of even my own friends and people that I know, you know, you drive by and people start. Oh, yeah, it's a, you know, rub and tug or whatever you want to call it. A happy ending place, you know, whatever. And you laugh and you joke about it. But for that girl that's having sex with 15 guys a day, it's not a happy ending for her. Happy ending for who?
0: Um,
1: You know, and and the fact that these are Chinese girls that are brought here from China to set up and 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 do this and now the fact that we have approximately 16,000 of them across America and each one has 2 to 4 trafficking victims at each place I mean think about that for a minute that's 36,000 trafficking victims right there just on the low end and in places like New York and other places there are more illicit massage businesses than there are Starbucks and McDonald's hmm. California has so many they can't even count them all they they know there's at least 4000 in california and they're not even sure how many there are
0: how how have they been able to grow so much and yet there doesn't seem to be much attention to it necessarily i mean you see every once in a while you'll see on the news you know oh uh, you know massage business got busted every now and then but it's like pulling up a weed you, you take out one and then another one pops up somewhere down the road.
1: So historically, law enforcement has had two approaches to battle the illicit massage business industry, and neither one of them have been successful at all. And so I think a lot of it is law enforcement has tried, it, does, it hasn't worked out, they get frustrated, and then they just move on to something else and they don't worry about it anymore. And, and then they only do something about it when the community is in such an uproar and they get so many complaints and they're forced to, and then they kind of go in there and do kind of a a half-assed kind of approach just so they can say, okay, we did something. But in reality, in my experience, again, they don't know what to do. So Allison and I, because of that, and and I really started working these illicit massage businesses back in about 2007. And to be quite honest, I didn't know what to do. There was no training. There was no mentor. There was no one for me to go and ask. I just started tinkering with these things. And honestly, I failed for about seven to eight years. I mean, I failed horribly. And then eventually I started figuring stuff out and I realized that they all do the same stuff. They all operate exactly the same. It doesn't matter if it's in Maine or San Diego or Florida or Alaska, they're all the same. And once you figure them out, then you can, then you can deal with them. And then when Allison and I met, she had some other ideas about doing some stuff. And then from that, we created something called the four corner strategy. And that basically takes four different strategies and minds them together. A criminal strategy, um, uh, a landlord engagement strategy, a civil strategy and a licensing strategy. And we put all these things together and we get all these things working together. And they take our new criminal response strategy that we created. And then once we do that, we basically create an inhospitable environment for these illicit massage businesses to operate. So Missouri was the first state to ever try this on a statewide basis. And Allison and I ran it and that was 2020. And we closed down 45% of all the illicit massage businesses in Missouri in nine months,
0: 45% in nine months. Wow, That's amazing.
1: It works. So wow. now we're teaching this across the country and New Mexico's doing it now. Kentucky's doing it now. Georgia's doing it now. We're teaching other states to do it. And so the goal is to get states to take this on. Now, not every state is interested. Also, and I've made this pitch to Kansas two or three times, and they're just not interested. So, I mean, I don't know what you can do about that. I mean, but like you know, new people, I guess, is about all you can do about that.
0: Right. And, you know, and I know you've you've talked about other, you know, th- there are just some agencies that don't want to participate in the training, you know, in this kind of training, um, not necessarily about um, illicit massage businesses, but even just on the human trafficking side, you know, they don't want to go, they don't want to touch it, or they don't want to, maybe, I don't know, Is it's just sticking their head in the sand and pretending it's not a problem in their jurisdiction.
1: I think it's a couple things. I think you definitely have people that will say that will tell you we don't have that here. Yeah. Um, so they're just oblivious to it. Um, or maybe they don't want to really know that it's here. Right. Um, and then you have some people that are just completely apathetic about it. There's no doubt about that. I know people in law enforcement that are just completely apathetic about it. Um, and then you have people that just don't want to deal with it at all. It's just another problem on their plate and they already have enough problems on their plate and they don't want another problem on their plate. And then lastly, I think some of it is ego. Um, Some folks in positions of authority never, ever, ever want to admit that there's something that they don't know. And because of that, I think they feel like, well, if I bring other people in here to teach us how to do this stuff, then it's going to somehow make me look bad or something that I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. I mean, we're all learning every day. I learn every day. I've been doing human trafficking work for a long time. I learn every day. Um, we're all learning, especially in a, in this field, because it's, it's new and and you have to evolve and you have to change. If you don't, as, as Alison and I like to say, in the illicit massage business world, and we just like to use this as an example, the, Chinese organized crime, which is what all this mostly is with the illicit massage business, they are scoring touchdowns, and we are kicking field goals. Hmm. And now the score is like 52 to 9, and we're looking around going, what happened? Yeah. That's exactly where we are. And the Chinese know it. They know hmm. we're kicking field goals, and they know they're scoring touchdowns. And they like it that way. And we just don't seem to be willing to change.
0: Hmm. What for the for those uh, people that do go through your training? What has the reaction been once they go through it?
1: About ninety five percent of the officers. We have an evaluation that we do at the end of the training, and ninety five percent of the officers answer this one question. And the question basically is: Now that you've been through the training, can you look back and see things that you could have done differently or that you should have done differently? And ninety five percent of the officers say yes that they've missed it that they would do things differently now, that they should have done things differently. I've had officers in tears. I've had officers crying. I've had officers visually upset from Florida to Idaho, from Missouri to Arizona. It doesn't matter. I've had them upset and they're like, I missed this. I let somebody down. I mean, I feel really bad now. And you just console them and say, hey, you didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. What is important is moving forward. How are we going to, how, what are we going to do moving forward? And then we, we do keep pretty copious stats on our training people and, and what results are. So it's pretty consistent that for every hundred officers we train, that hundred officers will locate three trafficking victims in the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, if we trained every police officer in America, they would find 27,000 trafficking victims in the first year. Not bad. I mean, that's just, it's astonishing. Yeah, it is.
0: I mean, it that's is. all you have
1: to do. We don't have to spend a bunch of money on stuff. We don't have to do any of these other things. All yeah. we have to do is just train the police.
0: Right. Um. So I know we talked about um, in Missouri there's the you know the a, a bill on the demand side for felony do you see anything on the horizon kind of on the other side of it which is the legalization of prostitution do you see that gaining momentum in the US
1: i do so there's groups that um are are spending a lot of money mostly in new york and oregon oregon is kind of the the petri dish yeah. so to speak for a lot of things you know that's That's where they first decided to decriminalize drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they realized that if they can get legalization through in Oregon, then of course California and Washington will follow suit. And then they're hoping that, you know, other states uh, will do that, which is really kind of insanity. Because if you look around the world, at any place in the world that they have legalized prostitution, trafficking increases, and it increases for two reasons. Number one, it increases for what we said earlier. People don't want to do it. And when you legalize it, the demand is automatically going to increase. Sure. And then the traffickers have to go find more people to keep up with the demand. So trafficking is going to increase. And secondly, it, it stops law enforcement from being able to have an end to even investigate it. So ninety nine percent of the time. When law enforcement decides to investigate something that could be possibly trafficking, and this is what we teach, we teach that prostitution is an indicator of possible trafficking. When we talked about indicators earlier, we, we teach the cops, when you see prostitution, that should be an indicator of possible trafficking. So how does the police investigate? Well, the police can't just investigate someone for no reason. I can't just investigate Neil for no reason. I have to have a reason. So what is that reason? That reason is prostitution because it's a crime and we teach the officers don't arrest for that because officers have the discretion to arrest or not to arrest don't arrest for that but you use that as your opening of your door that's how you get in that enables you to start looking into it and then once you get in then you start looking for the indicators of trafficking then you start doing a screening process then you start looking for force fraud and coercion and then you, you can make a trafficking case if there is no prostitution to investigate, how does law enforcement even start an investigation? The only way that we would start is if a girl comes forward and says, I'm in trafficked," And I already told you how rare that is six to 7%. Right. So basically traffickers would love legalization. They would never get arrested and have more demand. That'd be the best thing that could ever happen to them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would. So um, I'll, wrap up with this question. How how do you see the work that you and Allison are doing? How do you see that evolving going forward as as laws change and as people, you know, how people are attracting victims and all that? How do you see your, your the work you do changing going forward? Or is it too soon? Well, I hope goes? it's
1: going to change in the respect that we continue to get busier, because that means that law enforcement is making that paradigm shift and is ready to Make that change, just like law enforcement made the change with active shooters after Columbine, you know, or just like we made the change of domestic violence 35 or 40 years ago. I mean, for the older folks that are listening like me, 35 or 40 years ago, law enforcement handled domestic violence completely differently. We didn't think of them as victims. We when I was a young police officer, a young trooper, I remember going to calls and having that old crusty guy on the call with me going, well, what'd you do to piss him off? You know what I mean? And now we can think about that completely differently. We've made that paradigm shift. Um, So I hope that as we go forward, we're going to make that paradigm shift with law enforcement across the country, get law enforcement trained and really make a difference. I am not one of these people that does not believe that we can not win this. I do believe we can win this. We just have to do a few things that we're not doing currently. And if we make that paradigm shift and we change and we train all the police, I think we can make a huge difference. We can make that impact. I mean, we could we could even if we stop trafficking by fifty percent I mean, just yeah. think about that,
0: right. I mean,
1: it's massive.
0: yeah, I mean, and that's you know, and I think what the the work that you and Allison do. Is is was critical. It's one component of it, though, like you said, right? And I think that um, from my seat, I've got to help encourage other men on the demand side. For uh, sure, you know, and to when it's you know it it all and it all stems from pornography, and and that's where you know men get hooked on, and then that leads into the demand, and it just it all feeds on each other. So I think for for men out there listening and to think that we don't have a a job or a role out here, we do. And that's I now, agree with
1: that 100%. Teaching yeah. your sons, teaching your yes. nephew, um, you know, putting that those family values into them, um, those G- Judeo Christian values, um, teaching them about pornography and how evil it can be and all that stuff. I, I 100% agree with
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show this week. And uh, yeah, just uh, continued, continued success to what you and Allison are doing.
1: Thank you, Niels. Great for having me. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks again to Dan for coming on this week. I just, I I loved going back and listening to the interview. He's, you can see that he's got so much passion. He's so uh, like he, this is his life, what he does, both he and Allison. Um, They do so much uh, in the fight against human trafficking. And I'm just incredibly blessed to finally be on the right side of this battle with both of them. And I've put a link to the Human Trafficking Training Center down in the show notes, so I encourage you to go check them out and support them um, if you can. All right, next week, hey, it's the Fourth of July holiday, so as tradition here at Unmasked, we're going to have a solo show coming up next week. But I hope you come in and 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 uh, and check it out. And we've got a lot uh, a lot of um, a lot of great interviews coming up uh, in the month of July. So uh, a lot more ahead this summer. Uh, Look, I just, uh, I'll be praying for all of you. I hope you have a safe 4th of July. Enjoy the time with your family. Enjoy the time with your friends. And remember, Jesus didn't come to hang out with the saints and the righteous. He came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you, so much just like me. But he didn't come to revel in our sin. He came to call us out of it.